Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 will be at the end of the chapter today. We are closing out a uh, three-chapter section about meat offered to idols. <laughs> Finally getting to the conclusion here. Before we get into some more interesting stuff, the next uh, five chapters, if you didn't think 1 Corinthians was interesting yet, the next five chapters will be interesting enough for you, I suppose, as we have some amazing things to work through having to do with God's church, how we assemble, how we behave, how we act, um, how we fulfill the roles He's given us. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 27 through 11.1 is where we'll be today. Whoever made the chapter breaks later on, of course, you know, Paul didn't write his letters with chapters, and whoever did that later on really swung and missed here. Uh, verse 2 should have been the start of chapter 11. We'll just, uh, just pretend like that's where it is. We're going to finish out chapter 10, uh, including chapter 11, verse 1. Well, so far as Paul has answered the question, go ahead and flip back to chapter 8 and look again at verse 1 of chapter 8, where Paul writes, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, that's where we began, <laughs> answering this question, was chapter 8, verse 1, and now today, finally, we're finishing the three-chapter answer that Paul gives to that question. And he has presented three scenarios thus far. The first one was in chapter 8 having to do with dining in a temple precinct. Dining in the precinct of the temple, eating meat that was used in a ceremony in that temple, were they allowed to do it? And Paul describes that as a liberty. Paul describes it as something that someone was free to do if that person had knowledge, if his conscience would allow him to do it. The next situation that Paul addressed is actually in chapter 10. We covered it a few weeks ago where you were actually found at the pagan worship ceremony. You were in a religious ceremony with pagans and eating meat off the altar with them as a form of worship. And Paul says no way to that one, of course. You are not to be found there as a Christian. Christians don't join others in worship. Christians worship Christ and Christ alone. And a third scenario that Paul presented, we looked at last week, when you go to the meat market, so we're not talking about meat off the altar in the temple. We're not talking about dining in the precinct. We're talking about going to the store for all intents and purposes. And not knowing if that meat had previously been sacrificed to an idol, what do you do with that? And Paul says, that's not even a conscience issue, but you can make it one if you ask questions. So just eat it, he says. Don't ask questions, just eat it. So when it comes to dining in the temple precinct, that's a conscience issue. You need to think through that and figure out where your conscience is. Now, I should note, there are some commentators who view that section in chapter 8 when Paul is talking about dining in a, in a temple. They view that as actually dining in the worship ceremony, and therefore Paul isn't giving them a liberty there. He's actually going leading up to his argument in chapter 10 where he says, don't do that. But the problem is, in chapter 8, he calls it a liberty. So we have to say, okay, that must have been something outside of the religious ceremony around the temple where they were dining, because he does, in fact, call it a liberty. And he says, it's up to your conscience. Don't cause another one to stumble. Don't cause your brother or sister to stumble. If your conscience allows you to do it, be mindful that other Christians may not be allowed to do it by their conscience. When it comes to eating from the altar in a worship ceremony, of course, don't do it. <laughs> it's totally forbidden. 
You're sharing in demons, Paul instructed us, when you do that. It's not just meat at that point. You're actually in a religious ceremony sharing in demons. And then finally, of course, the meat market, not a conscience issue unless you make it one. Well, Christian living is never that simple. If that's all we had and it's like, okay, well, uh, that sounds doable. I see where, you know, all the fences are. I see the guidelines here. That sounds all right. Well, Christian living is complicated because I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, and we're just here living together. (laughs) Here we are trying to live amongst each other, and there are some people who will make issues that shouldn't be conscience issues into conscience issues. You might do that to yourself by all of your scruples while you're questioning this or that. And we want to avoid these types of things if at all possible. If it is something that we are free to do, we want to maintain that liberty. But things get complicated, things get confusing. And even this section, as we finish out chapter 10, this section is quite confusing. There are several takes on the whole section. We are fallen creatures trying to interpret a most holy word from God, and that leads to confusion at times. But here's a good rule of thumb that you can take with you as we finish off this topic of meat offered to idols. It seems like when it came to the meat, the location mattered. The location mattered. As the meat started off in the religious ceremony, and there it was being used religiously, it was off limits. But as it moved away from that religious ceremony, it lost, as one commentator put it, its religious character. As it went out into the precinct for a dining type of situation, as it went to the meat market, wherever it went, it lost its religious character. So if it's partaking in a religious ceremony that is sharing in demons, don't do it. Outside of that worship, it's okay, but be mindful of the conscience. Now, I did also write an article this week on my website you may be interested in as I thought through these things more. I wrote an article titled, Media Offered to Idols, and I won't get into all of that here, but thinking about how we can apply this principle of meat offered to idols in our day and age, and I specifically focused in that article, what about those who wrote books, wrote music, whatever they did in the name of Christ, and then later fell away? Well, they were obviously doing it before, either in their flesh or sharing in demons or doing it to an idol. They weren't doing it truly to God. They never were regenerate. So what do we do? Do we burn all their books? Do we rip those pages out of the hymnal? (laughs) What do we do with those things? So I wrote an article on that, which you may be interested in, uh, but again, I won't get into all of that today. But I want us to think through those types of principles because there is application for us. And Paul here presents one final scenario for this idol meet, and that was Apparently a very realistic scenario, a possible source of strife in Corinth. Look with me at verse 27. This is after he speaks of the meat market. He now says, chapter 10, verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience' sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. And we'll go ahead and stop right there. Let's look, let's make some observations here and look at what's going on. And I've titled this section of the sermon, An Awkward Dinner. (laughs) An awkward dinner indeed. So first, there's a lost person that invites a saved person over for dinner. First thing we want to see there is apparently that was happening 
Let's aim for that, all right? We don't want to miss the fact that of all the other things that are going on in the passage, let's aim for having friends who don't share the same religious views as us, being friends with us enough to invite us over for dinner. That's a good thing, isn't it? That happened in Jesus' ministry. He, of course, had those associations, and that led to some accusations that were, of course, false. But it's good for you to consider, do you have friends who don't know the Lord who invite you over to, to eat? It's a good thing to have going on in your life, a good thing to cultivate in your life. So, didn't want us to miss that. The second thing I don't want us to miss is he says in verse 27, if you're invited and you want to go, go ahead and go. Upon invitation, this decision is up to you. You're not compelled to do anything in this situation. It's if you want to go, you may go. It's not that you have to go, but if you want to, go for it. You're not bound one way or another. And that, again, of course, is a mark of Christian freedom, isn't it? That we can make decisions based on our conscience. Because we've been presented with a couple scenarios here of reasons why you might dine, one being perhaps at a house of an unbeliever, or even if you're invited to go to that temple precinct. Maybe one of the pagan worshipers outside of the religious ceremony invites you into the precinct for some sort of a dinner they're having afterwards. Maybe your conscience is okay with the house, but not the precinct. Maybe your conscience is okay with both. Maybe your conscience isn't okay with either. You have to work through that. You have to think through that. It's up to you, because if you want to go, go. That's the standard here. You're not compelled, but if you want to, go. And Paul goes on to say in verse 27, if you do go, don't make an issue out of the food. Just eat. Because in this scenario, you know full well if you're being invited by a pagan who has meat probably that he has acquired from the pagan ceremony, it's a good possibility that what you're going to eat was formerly used in a demonic worship scenario. It's very well a possibility. And Paul says, if you find yourself there, if you want to go and you go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. So again, as the meat has moved out of the temple, it has lost its religious character, just eat it. If you go, don't ask questions. But when you're at this dinner, you might not be the only Christian there. And there may be another Christian there who didn't obey Paul's advice and did ask questions. That other Christian was getting nosy and was looking through the garbage to see where that package said it came from. And that fellow believer comes along, verse 28, and says to you, hey, yeah, that's, that's meat that's been offered to an idol. Well, now what do you do? Because the only reason that that fellow Christian would be bringing it up is because that fellow Christian has a problem with it. That fellow Christian sees an issue there, and that Christian at the dinner table is bringing it up. And you're sitting there, put yourself in in this place, and you have to choose, do I make the host happy or do I make this nosy Christian happy? And you could probably add legalistic Christian happy. Do I make this nosy legalistic Christian happy? Okay, well, that is a different situation. The situation has fundamentally changed at that point. You're not by yourself eating whatever's in front of you. You're now with another Christian, at least one other Christian, who has an issue with what's being eaten at the dinner. So now what do you do? Well, the problem as presented, first thing we need to recognize now with this new situation, is the problem as presented is his problem or her problem, the other believer. It's not your problem. 
Your conscience doesn't have an issue. This person's conscience has an issue. And when it comes to choosing between this person with the problem who shares your faith and the unbelieving host, we are told to accommodate the other Christian. We are not to accommodate the unbelieving host. Look at what it says. When that person tells you, this is meat, sacrificed to idols, don't eat it. There's your choice that you, that you make. Don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience' sake. So, you've got a couple things happening there where you've got the person who has the sensitive conscience who was nosy and found out it was offered to idols and says, look, uh, that was offered to idols. Well, because of that person, you want to abstain, and also because now there might be chatter in the room about what should we do about meat offered to idols, and Paul says, just err on the side of saying, I won't eat it. For conscience' sake, there might be other people in the room then who get riled up because you're now eating and they're not. And so Paul says, look, don't eat it. Choose to accommodate the Christian, not the unbeliever. And I think there's a, a principle we can extract out here. Of course, we can't apply it across the board in every scenario without asking questions, but there's at least a, scenario, or a principle of look to accommodate or to team with the Christian, even the Christian you don't fully agree with before the world. Before you accommodate the world, look to accommodate your Christian family. That's Paul's advice here. The other Christian who has the conscience issue should be accommodated. Now, again, it's not your problem, it's his problem. He's the one who brought it up. But because you love him more than you love yourself, it's your problem now too. And that's what Paul's been saying through this letter is, lay down your rights for the sake of love. You may have freedom, you may have rights, you may have all knowledge, and you may be free to do all sorts of stuff. That's great, but are you willing to lay it down for the sake of loving in humble love your brother or your sister in Christ? So in this scenario, it's his problem, but because you love him more than you love yourself, it's now time for you to accommodate him, even if it seems legalistic to do so. Because this would seem legalistic to many of us, right? Like, whoa, you're just putting rules out there that we shouldn't be putting out. Well, listen to what John MacArthur says on this point. I thought this was a great short statement. The legalism of a weaker brother should not make us legalistic, only gracious. In our accommodating, we are not joining him in legalism, but we're showing grace, humbly loving him. You're thinking of things probably like, oh, what about this? What about that? We're getting to it. So just hang in there, all right? We're getting to it. Because the question is, now, considering all of this, does this mean that the weaker brother has control over everybody else? Because if this is the case where we're called to accommodate him, does that mean the weaker brother or the weaker sister gets to roll into any scenario and say, you know, well, this is something I prefer, so you have to submit to me. I don't like that music. I'm, I'm weak in that area, so accommodate me. Ooh, wow. That'd be nice to be the weaker brother, huh? You get out everything you want. Well, I don't think that's the case. Again, let's think through some basic things and let's see some basic observations. First thing to see, go back to chapter 8 and look at verse 13 with me, the last verse of chapter 8. And look at how strongly Paul speaks 
to accommodating the weaker brother. So before we get the train too far out of the station here, let's hedge everything with the Word of God. Paul concludes that if food causes his brother to stumble, he says, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And I I want us to see here not a rule that we can apply to life, but a heart. I want you to see the heart of Paul here, the love that Paul had for the church. This isn't like setting up some sort of chart or graph or or decision tree. Is, Is this happening? Is that happening? Well, then you have to submit, then you don't have to submit. Forget all of that out of your mind for a moment and just see how much Paul truly cared for the body of Christ. He says, if meat causes him to stumble, I'm fine with just passing on meat. That's his heart. His heart isn't, I'm really hungry for meat, and that person just needs to grow up. Is that your heart? Your heart needs to be, whatever the issue is, I just want to serve my brother or my sister in love. That needs to be our heart. That was Paul's heart. But I want us to see something else. If you look again at the end of chapter 10, where he's bringing up this dinner scenario, you're at the table together. Let us remember that this is a single event. This isn't an ongoing relational situation. This is a single event where you're at a dinner and it all is happening so fast, probably it seems in the moment, but Paul's giving you a principle. If you find yourself in that scenario, here's what you should do. Here's the principle. Accommodate the Christian. Paul is not saying, as an ongoing way of life, always find out what offends everybody and never do it. Because that's a fool's errand, isn't it? That is a treadmill. You'll never reach the end. So Paul is saying, look, in this scenario, here's what you can do. It's not an ongoing situation in a local fellowship. Paul's not even talking about in the fellowship of the church. You're at an unbeliever's invitation. You're at his house or at a temple precinct or somewhere. You're not in the congregation. So he's not talking about an ongoing relationship dynamic. He's talking about a one-off instance. This isn't relational submission that Paul's referencing. We're going to be talking about that starting in the next sermon. Paul's going into submission. This isn't talking about the relationship between the church and Christ, the head of the church. It's not relational submission like that. It's not talking about the gender roles that God has designed for men and women. We'll get into that in the next chapter. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about us as citizens in relation to our government, how we are to submit. It's not talking about that. It's talking about loving wisdom in a one-time type of scenario. It's not relational. It's loving wisdom. It's not ongoing. It's in a moment. And Paul's really asking the question here, if you start at the end of in the second half of verse 29, when Paul says, For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning for that or that for which I give thanks? Paul is asking the question, is it advantageous for you to roll into a scenario with some weaker Christians and flex your freedom? Is that advantageous for you or the church or for them? To go into a scenario where you know that everybody there has a conscience issue about alcohol, and you come in wheeling a keg behind you and a bunch of empty cups and saying, hey, here I am. Is that advantageous? No, it's not. Or knowing that a group of Christians has an issue with gambling, and and you come in with your cards and everything else, and you're just ready to roll. That's only going to create more division, isn't it? 
That's going to put something out there for you to be judged by among those people. Is that wise? No, it's not. That's what Paul's saying. Why would I put myself in that scenario when my heart is for unity, when my heart is for the building of the church? Why would I do that? I can put those things aside for the sake of love and unity in the church. He's asking the question, why should stronger brothers invite judgment and slander upon themselves from the weaker brother? They shouldn't do it. So again, the question isn't, is this an ongoing relational type of submission? Well, no, it's loving wisdom case by case. And there's real freedom. I don't want us to say, okay, well then, stronger brothers, you don't have your freedom then in those scenarios. The stronger brother still has his freedom in that scenario. When he's at the dinner table, is he allowed to eat the meat? Well, Paul just told him, eat without asking questions. He has that freedom. He's not going back on anything that he said in chapter 8 or in chapter 10 where he's saying, look, you have the freedom to eat. He's not going back on those things, but he's saying there is conscientious restraint That's something that a lot of us aren't familiar with in some areas of our life. There is such a thing as being conscientious of your brother and restraining for the sake of love, because love is better than knowledge. That's where we started. The answer to this question, and back in chapter 8, we know that all have knowledge. Well, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love is better than knowledge. We are built in love, not in knowledge. So the stronger brother's aim then in all things should be to give no offense, to give no offense whatsoever. Look with me at verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit but the prophet of the many, so that they may be saved. Your aim, if you're a stronger brother in a certain area, if you have a stronger conscience in a certain area, your aim is to give no offense, even if those other people lack understanding. Obviously, at that dinner, there was something off by the person who brought up, hey, this was offered to idols. There was lacking of understanding somewhere. But Paul says, accommodate. In the moment, accommodate. And this is in all of our relationships. Look at verse 32, the classes of people listed, either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Whether they're unsaved Jews, unsaved Greeks, or your brothers and sisters in Christ who have a conscience issue, accommodate in the name of love. Our aim must be to profit the many, and that means laying down our rights. Yeah, you've got a right to do this or a right to do that, That's great, but if it comes at the expense of love, you're doing it wrong. Love trumps knowledge. So we sacrificially love others by conforming to their preferences in certain scenarios. We conform to their preferences. We just hate this type of stuff in our flesh, don't we? We have our preferences. Why should we ever conform to another? And you might be responding in your heart, but that isn't fair to me. If that's what you're doing, you've got the wrong heart about this, okay? You need to check your heart on that because Paul's point is, yeah, it's not about you. It's not about you. Look back up at verse uh, 24. 
of chapter 10. We looked at this last week. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor, unless it's not fair to you. No, that's not the point. We want the lost to be saved, and we want believers to be edified. That should be our aim, even if that means laying down our freedoms. Reminds me of Romans 12, verse 18. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So any given scenario where there's strife, as far as it is on you to adjust, adjust for there to be peace. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So now having said that, I want to also say this, just in case we get too imbalanced about our view of these things. Weaker brothers, and I touched on this already, but weaker brothers are not allowed to be ignorant tyrants. So just as stronger brothers aren't allowed to go off flexing all of their rights and freedoms and creating division, so weaker brothers aren't allowed in their ignorance or whatever it may be to roll in and just be tyrants over everybody else in the name of being weak. It's a two-way relationship of humble love. Again, from MacArthur, he says, when we restrict our liberty for the sake of a weaker brother, we should also try to help him grow in the understanding of his own Christian freedom. We should help his conscience grow stronger in order that he can come to enjoy his full liberty in Christ. That's a good word. As If we're restraining, if we're holding back, if we're adjusting, if we're adapting in the name of love because we know we might offend somebody over something that they are free to do, we should come along and as much as we can from the Word of God help that person have a biblical understanding of that issue. In Corinth, he started off the issue in chapter 8 saying, look, there are some people that don't have the knowledge that idols really aren't anything. They think that they are real gods. People getting saved out of paganism in Corinth, and they had their God for this and their God for that and their God for whatever. Even though they're Christians now, they still have in their mind, well, those gods are real. And they're lacking in their understanding. And so it is the stronger brother's responsibility to come alongside, especially for a reason like that, and show the Word of God that, yeah, there may be real powers there, but it's not another deity. There's only one God. And any power behind those things is just a demon. It's the responsibility when yielding to continue to love that person through instruction, not just through yielding itself. So love must guide in both directions. If a weaker brother refuses to hear anything from the Word of God and says, I like my weakness, don't tell me, he's in the wrong. He or she is in the wrong. We should never refuse instruction from the Word of God. We should never twist the Word of God to get our understanding out of it. We should look to see, and as far as it depends on us, how what we find in Scripture applies to us today rightly. So weaker brothers are not allowed to be ignorant tyrants, and they can't be allowed to lead in a church if they're going to impose their own opinions. This happens a lot in churches and Christian organizations across the country, across the world, where weaker brothers are in positions of leadership, and they impose their weakness on the whole body. That's not okay. That is not okay. Those are opinions that cannot be imposed on people as if it is the law of God, because it's not. There are many issues that we could use as examples, but I'll just leave those in your mind for now. We can, you can ask questions afterwards if you have questions. But 
Weak brothers cannot be allowed to lead in the church if they're going to impose their opinions. And they can't be allowed if they're not in leadership. They can't be allowed to go on pestering the body. Church leadership, which should be made up of stronger brothers or those who just know not to impose their opinions, they need to be on the lookout for weaker brothers or sisters in the body who are pestering everybody on issues of opinions. That cannot be allowed to happen in the church. Remember, the event we're looking at with the dinner is a single one-off event where the weaker brother is accommodated. It's not an ongoing thing in the church. Can you imagine what it would be like if Orchard Hills Bible Church, every single time someone had any kind of issue with anything that was done, we accommodated? This place would just be in ashes. <laughs> we, we would all get so tired of each other, we would simultaneously burn the church down. We would burn the building down. Because we just can't do it. You can't do it. If someone walks in and says, well, my conscience doesn't allow me to go to a church that serves coffee, how many of you would be in favor of shutting down the coffee ministry? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Your lack of yawns tell me you appreciate the coffee, okay? Um, we can't go on that way. That is not how decisions are made at a corporate level. This is from R.C. Sproul in a sermon that's titled, The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother. That, that kind of perks your attention a little bit, huh? Good sermon. He says, as soon as the weaker brother tries to enforce his weakness as the law of the church, the gospel is threatened. They must not be allowed to establish laws where God has left us free. The application of these principles in real life takes the wisdom of Solomon and then some. Yes, it does. It absolutely does. And so we take away from this in dealing with matters, particularly in the church, we must have qualified leadership in place. The elders must be qualified because dealing with such an issue takes men whom God has prepared for the task because they can get really sticky sometimes, those situations, and they need to be sorted through by the Word of God and with lots of love. Now, let's end with this, where all Christians, whether weak or strong, agree. Look again at verse 31. It's a verse you know. Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And jump down to chapter 11, verse 1. He says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. This is the greatest principle, that we are to follow Christ and do all things for the glory of God. This is what we are to do. So however you go about eating or drinking or whatever you do, Paul says. So, of course, we're on the topic of consuming meat. He's going to say eating and drinking, but then he says, or whatever you do. This is all-encompassing for your life, whatever you do. Do it pursuing a magnification of God in your heart and in your witness and in your family. All that you do, do for God's glory. And this is the Christian's theme. Colossians 3.17, you don't have to turn there, but in Colossians 3.17, it says that whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, talking about spiritual gifts, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that 
In all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We seek not our own glory in this life. We we don't pursue our own comfort or our own preferences or our own gain. We seek the glory of God. And if this is your ambition in life, it will overshadow every other ambition. Every other ambition is just a means of glorifying God because that's the ultimate goal. And let me tell you, God is glorified by your laying down of your rights for the sake of love. That's the context of this verse. So oftentimes we quote this verse and we don't use it wrongly per se, but we leave out all the context. God is glorified by you laying down your rights for the sake of love. We glorify God when we sacrificially love others, modeling the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is Paul's final point in his answer. Let's model the love of Jesus among each other. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. We care for the church first, and then we seek to win the lost. There's a large section of Scripture that I've not read, I don't think, maybe once in this whole section of these three chapters, and that's Romans 14. Turn there with me. You may be wondering why I haven't read more from here. And I wanted to see 1 Corinthians on its own terms and then come back to Romans 14, where Paul is writing to that church about food and how food and things like it should be handled in the fellowship. Romans chapter 14, we're going to start at verse 15. See how the goal is to care for the body, to seek the edification of the body. Romans 14, 15, it says, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now, that's a sentence that really just summarizes a lot of this, isn't it? If you're hurting somebody because you're refusing to lay down your right to certain foods, you've lost love. You're just thinking about yourself. Verse 16, therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything which by which your brother stumbles. Verse 22, the faith which you have have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. You see how important this is in the church, that we watch out for these things? Because it's real easy to stop walking according to love and to start walking according to what I want. That should not characterize the body of Christ in any way, at any level. And a sober reminder, this is Galatians 5.15. You don't have to turn there, but 
Galatians 5, verse 15, gives us this warning. If you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So quickly, on these types of issues, we lose sight of love and we head down a track that's destructive. Relationships are ruined. Churches are closed because of these types of issues, because they lost sight of love. No one was willing to lay down their preferences. No one was willing to set aside their rights. They lost love. They grew cold. And now the witness that that church had is either tarnished or just gone. That should not be the case in the church. So we care for the body first. We seek the edification of the body first. And secondly, we seek to win the lost with wise and obedient tactics that reflect Christ's love. Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. That's what Jesus did, isn't it? He modeled that in everything in His life, from birth till death. He came not to be served, but to serve, and that needs to be the heart of the Christian. As we understand the gospel, the heart of the gospel is this agape love, this selfless love. And if we maintain this mindset, we won't be divided over food. We won't be divided over any trivial matter if we maintain this mindset. And this is Paul's desire, unity in the church. These things like food, whatever questionable items there are, they're nothing for the love that we have in Christ. We'll figure it out if we have that. But as soon as we lose it, we will be devoured. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the reminders and warnings that we have in Scripture, the reminders of Your love demonstrated in the gospel, how You came in our place doing what we couldn't do and dying the death we deserved. That was true selfless love. And the warnings of what happens when we lose sight of that love, that we focus on ourselves and we get fearful and we get anxious and we get just very fleshly with one another. Have us to heed that warning today that we wouldn't begin going down a road of finding out our own preferences and enforcing them, but that we would keep walking according to love, the gospel love by which we've been saved, that you model for us each and every day of our lives in the ways that you provide for us and protect us. We thank you that we have your Spirit who is in us, who teaches us, who guides us in all these things. And we ask that this week He would open our eyes and He would lead us into new ways of showing sacrificial love for one another. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.